Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to the Safina Society podcast, the As Solo edition. Now, those of you who listened to last week's podcast might recall that Moin mentioned that in addition to our group podcast that we'll continue to do on a bi-weekly basis and Dr. Shadi's solo podcast, which he will also be continuing uh, to provide us, both Moin and I, uh, mostly individually, but sometimes maybe even together, will be providing material for the podcast. Uh, Moin has a really great series planned. He's been uh, working on it, doing some research and really planning it out well. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's some good stuff, and I think that you're really going to enjoy it. So be on the lookout for that, and it should be coming up soon. And what we have this week is me. Um, unfortunately for you guys, I haven't put in that kind of work. I don't have that kind of planning for this podcast, nor am I as eloquent as Dr. Shadi is. But hopefully you'll be benefiting from uh, the discussion that I get into today. So without anything further, let's jump into it. Um, what I want to talk to you about this week is the idea of using language to convey meaning precisely. And the we're going to center that conversation around the term Islamophobia. And I don't mean that I'm going to be talking about how people hate Muslims, although we'll maybe touch on that a little bit since that's really part of what we're uh, going to be addressing. But I really want to get into the value or lack thereof of this term Islamophobia. Um, now, I know that a lot of people who argue for it, particularly Muslims, argue for the use of it, are coming from a position that the term itself is useful as a shorthand, perhaps, as a way to identify certain behaviors from people towards Muslims or attitudes or beliefs that people have about Muslims. And it lets us use this as a catch-all term to identify those things. And I think that that's precisely where it falls short of being useful. And it becomes actually the opposite. It's a term that muddies up the discussions and muddies up our understanding of what we're talking about, right? Now, one of the things that I learned in my academic career and in my professional training is that using the most precise language that you can to convey to your listener the idea, the concept that you're trying to convey is absolutely necessary. You have to walk away from whatever statement you're making, knowing that the people you're trying to get to understand something have understood it the way that you intended, right? Because there's this twin trap that many times people who are speaking, whether it's to an individual, to a podcast audience, to a jury, what have you, this twin trap that people fall into of making the future mistake of assuming that I'm going to say this, I'm going to express this idea, and the people that I'm expressing it to will understand it from these words that I'm about to use, right? And the past mistake, the retroactive mistake of after having spoken those words, moving on from that discussion, assuming that it's been understood the way that you intended it to be understood, right? So these things might seem like the same thing, but they're actually slightly different, although they go hand in hand. So, I mean, just to give an example, um, say I'm trying to tell someone about a car, and I go, yeah, I was in my ride, and then I got out. Now, I'm assuming that my audience has the same vernacular as me and that if they're of a certain age group and and they grew up in America or in some other uh, Anglophile countries, that they'll understand that by ride, I mean car, right? So when I'm planning to say it, I'm thinking, yeah, these people that I'm talking to, they're going to know what a ride is. And uh, once I say it, I move on to and then I got out and I went and did whatever it is that I was doing. Again, assuming that the people that are standing in front of me or listening to me wherever have understood what I meant by ride. And that's not that's not a good, precise use of language. Now, in a, in a casual conversation that is of low stakes and low consequences, it's probably fine. Even if they didn't really get what you were saying, no big deal. But 
when it's critical, when it's important that it be clear what you're saying, you should not say, yeah, I got out of my ride and then I went and did whatever. You should say, I was in my car and then I arrived and I got out. Because you want to make it absolutely positively inarguable what you meant. And you don't want to assume that everybody will understand nor that everybody has understood. Now, uh, I don't mean to be pedantic about it. That might seem like uh, we're, you know, parsing it too much. But when it counts, language counts. And so for this very reason, Islamophobia is a terrible term to use. Because what does it actually mean? Even the academics that invented the term, that popularized it, that write about it um, professionally, academically, can't agree on what it encompasses. And even some of those academics are themselves have expressed that they're not sure what it really does or doesn't involve or what it does or doesn't cover or whether X is this or whether it's just a substitute word for racism or a substitute word for xenophobia or a substitute word for, you know, this bias or that bigotry. The term is very amorphous. And though some people might say, yeah, it's a catch-all, it's good, it covers all of these behaviors, that's a huge mistake because all of these behaviors are not the same thing. And the attitudes that we confront, uh, anti-Muslim attitudes, anti-Islam attitudes, which is not the same thing, uh, bigotry against foreigners, bigotry against people from certain regions, etc., etc., all the different subcategories that you could uh, put under this umbrella, they're actually very different things and require very different responses. So, for example, what is a phobia? Let's get to the root of it. What is a phobia precisely? A phobia is an irrational fear of something, right? Because some fears are normal and rational and some aren't. And sometimes the two might seem similar. So, uh, you know, the name of that movie from back in the 80s, Arachnophobia, this fear of spiders. Arachnophobia is an irrational fear of spiders. And it's perfectly fine if you have a tarantula crawling on you. I think most people don't like that, right? And they might even feel afraid. But, but it's a well-founded fear. You know, this is a big spider. Spiders can be poisonous. You don't know if this is a poisonous spider or not. It might harm you. you. might be allergic. There's a lot of reasons why a person might have a rational fear of spiders. But arachnophobia describes something that goes beyond that. Any phobia describes something that goes beyond the rational, well-founded, well-grounded fear that a reasonable person would have into something that go, that's without basis or exceeds the rational basis. So a person suffering from arachnophobia, which is a psychological condition, it's psychiatric, it's, it's, it's a mental health problem. A person suffering from that problem, you know, if they see a cartoon drawing of a spider might, you know, have some adverse reaction. If they see like a stuffed animal spider might be totally put off by it. If they hear that there was a spider in the house, won't go in, right? It's just, it's a, it's a fear taken f way too far. Are we saying that people who don't like Muslims or don't like Islam or don't like foreigners or don't like Arabs or don't like Pakistanis, are we saying that these people are having an irrational fear to, that, to the level where it reaches a psychological problem? I mean, I don't think so. I don't think that's what we're saying. And we definitely shouldn't be saying that, right? Because that's not always the case. I mean, in the first place, a lot of people who don't like Muslims aren't scared of us at all. And a lot of the people who don't like Islam aren't scared of Islam, precisely. Rather, they have a severe dislike for Muslims or a severe dislike for Islam, maybe even a hatred of it. But hating and disliking something is absolutely not the same as being afraid of it. And even going further, suppose that it really is based on a fear. Not all fears are irrational. And not everyone who is afraid of Islam is coming from an irrational, uh, psychologically damaged position on it, right? So take, for example, uh, the rabbis in Medina. 
Now the rabbis in Medina, not only did they not like the Muslims, not only did they not like Islam, not only did they not uh, want the Messenger وسلم, to be preaching in Medina, they actively worked against the message. They actively worked against the Messenger of Allah Were these people Islamophobes? I don't think we would use that term necessarily, right? And if we're being honest, actually they did fear Islam. The, the reason for their aversion to Islam, the reason for their aversion to the revelation was because they feared what Islam, what accepting Islam, what the growth of Islam in Medina would do to their position, to their status, to their community. These were people who were awaiting a prophet, who knew the signs, and who in many cases recognized the signs of prophethood in Rasulullah And yet they rejected and fought against and struggled to bring the message down. And it was because of fear. But it wasn't an irrational fear. Now the fear was morally wrong. It was theologically unsound. It was a huge mistake. And it was a bad thing. And they were absolutely wrong for it. Again, on the theological level and on the moral level. They were 100% wrong. But that doesn't mean that the fear was irrational. In fact, it was very rational. They understood clearly what would happen if they accepted a prophet that wasn't from their lineage. A prophet that was from the Arab lineage. And whom they couldn't claim as one of their own. What would happen to them? What would happen to the communities? What would happen to their status if they accepted that and submitted to the message of Islam? And so their hatred, their animosity was born out of a fear, but not an irrational one. So we can't even say that even the bigots or the people who are in some way fighting against Islam or being uh, doing negative things to Muslims or saying negative things, etc., that these people aren't necessarily coming from an irrational, fearful place. They might have a rational basis for their fear. They might really believe that if Islam spreads in this country, their religions will become diminished, that their children might become Muslim, and this is something that they fear, not because of a phobia, but because it's something that they dislike. Now, they're wrong. We know that they're wrong. That's not a question. This is not, well, it's a rational basis, so it's okay. It's not. But it's also not irrational, and it's not something that exceeds the bounds of rationality. It's just that they're not, they don't get it. They don't understand what, they're, what they stand to lose. Um, additionally, if we look at the actions of so-called Islamophobes, their goals, their agendas, the means that they take to attain those goals, oftentimes what we'll find is that it does not fall under the category of fear whatsoever. Not even close. Uh, you know, psychologically, fear results in usually, the majority of the time, in two possible reactions. One is you freeze. When confronted with something that frightens you, people and animals tend to freeze. You're stuck in your tracks. You don't know what to do. So, inaction. The other main reaction is to flee from it. Run away. Get as far as you can from it. And this is somewhat different from fight or flight. But the fear reaction tends to be either to freeze up or to flee from, from, the, from the thing that you're afraid of. So... To, to illustrate this, um, say, it's a crazy scenario, but say you come to, to your house, you open the door, you walk in, and there's a wolf, like not a dog, a wolf, s sitting in your living room, growling at you. Some people will freeze up, and that inaction could cost them their life. And some people will quickly turn around and run away, right? This is a reaction based on fear. What is the reaction that the so-called Islamophobes have against the Muslims? It's to try to get rid of us. To set up travel bans. 
to not let us into the country, to harm us, not harm us because they're confronted with us, to seek us out to harm us, right? So people that shoot up mosques, people that uh, want to join the military so they can go overseas and fight Muslims. These people are not being confronted with Islam in their front door. They're traveling across the world to the Muslim lands with the intention of killing Muslims, right? What is the basis of that? It's not fear. So there's this other psychological thing, which uh, this, this, uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat similar to the fear reaction, but it's different, and it's different in significant ways. Um, and that's the disgust reaction, right? Um, and there's several people who've written about this. Um, but the disgust reaction is to eradicate the thing that you've been confronted with that you don't want, right? So say you have cockroaches. It's the perfect example. It's vermin. You have roaches or rats or something in your house. Now, you might be afraid of touching them, right? But because you're disgusted by them, because you fear contamination, because you fear that they're going to spread a disease or that they're going to cause you some kind of harm that's different from an imminent danger to your life. You don't think that the cockroach is going to jump on you and bite your throat out the way a wolf would, right? You're not afraid that a rat, even though rats bite and stuff, you're not afraid that a rat is going to, you know, grab you like a grizzly bear would and tear you up. That's not the fear. The fear is that they will bring disease, they'll spread filth, and that they'll contaminate your environment. So if you walk into your house and you see a roach, you're not running away and you're not freezing in fear most of the time. Some people might. But for the most part, what you're trying to do is kill it, you're trying to get rid of it. Same thing with any other kind of vermin. You want to get rid of it. And even if you have to chase it out of the house, and even if you know that um, there, it's down in the basement or up in the attic or something like that, you'll go out and seek it and try to find it and try to get rid of it, right? This is the disgust reaction. And it's completely different from the fear reaction. And it's much more akin to what we see most so-called Islamophobes engaging in. So why are we describing them as people with a phobia, people who fear Islam? They don't fear Islam. On the contrary, what it is is that they're having the disgust reaction, the kind that uh, Adolf Hitler was writing about in Mein Kampf about Jewish people. He wasn't afraid of them. He was trying to rid his country of it. He was seeking purity of his country, purity of the white race or whatever, right? This is what he was looking for. And part of that was eliminating not just Jewish people, but also anyone who was mentally handicapped, people who were physically handicapped, uh, gypsies, people who had the wrong social ideas, like social, like communists, right? He wanted to get rid of anyone who was contaminating the purity of his idea. And this is much more akin to what we're facing. Now, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi ideology was not Jewophobic or Judeophobic or anything of the sort. They weren't afraid of anybody. They, were look, they went to other countries to round up Jewish people. This was not a case of them being afraid of them. This was a case of them wanting to eliminate them and get rid of them and to purify their environment of them. And this is much more akin to what we're dealing with, with so-called Islamophobes. It's the biggest misnomer ever. So why is it important, right? This is the core of it. This is, the, this is really the crux. It's important because when the average Muslim hears that people are Islamophobic and they're afraid of Muslims and it's an irrational fear, they think, hey, irrational fear, we can overcome that. They're scared of us because they think we're terrorists and we're going to come kill them all. And that's not the case at all. We're all good people. So maybe if I just smile and show them that I'm a lot like them, and sometimes this is not necessarily conscious. This could happen at the subconscious level. In fact, it probably often does. Although not always. Some people are consciously engaged in this project, futile project. So what will happen is the average Muslim will hear, oh, those people are afraid of us. Let me assuage their fears. Let me, let me, let me try to be as non-confrontational, as non-scary as I can be, and then they'll love me. And then they'll accept me. And in the first place, it's not going to work. Not with the people that we're most concerned about. Now, it's good to be good to, to your neighbor. And it's good to be good to people that 
don't know you and don't know a lot about Islam, that's fine. You're talking about education here. That's a whole other story. But when you're dealing with people that actively don't want you in their country, that actively want to prevent you from entering their, their homeland, their fatherland, people that are that actively want to join the military so they can go to your own to, to Muslim majority countries to kill Muslims who think of Muslims as less than human, like vermin. Being nice and showing them, hey, sometimes we party and drink and have girlfriends and go to clubs and we don't all have beards. We're all we're not all angry mullahs or that's that stuff's not working. That obsequiousness only makes them like you less. First of all, they're not buying it. They don't want to hear it. They're not they know that it's an act. They can tell. And even if they thought that you were sincere, they don't care. They're not going for it. So where using an idea like when using a term like Islamophobia for the generality of the Muslims, where it becomes dangerous is that we don't know how to properly address these things. We start coming up with solutions that are ineffective and in fact are often counterproductive. So the way to confront these people that truly hate Muslims and are having not a phobia of us but a disgust reaction, right, who see us as less than human, and who see us as contaminating their country or their uh, neighborhoods or what have you, the people that don't want us to have masjids in their neighborhood. And not just, yeah, I would vote against that, but actively form committees and go to meeting after meeting in town halls. You know, there's two towns in New Jersey just in the last few years that actively fought to block the building of a masjid in their, in their town, right? The first one was taken to court and they lost because obviously they were doing it from a place of bigotry. They lost and they had to pay out millions of dollars in damages and the message still got approved, right? The federal court said, you can't do that. They get to build their message. And in fact, you owe them all these, all these, all these damages. A couple of years later, a town literally a few miles away tried to do the same thing as if they didn't just see it happening. Right? Why? These are people who are committed, who are committed to not having Muslims around them, who are committed to keeping Muslims from worshiping in their town. And that kind of commitment is not from fear, it's not a phobia. Those people hate Muslims. They stand up in those meetings and they say, no, 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 we don't want these people here. Right? They're not scared of the Muslims. They put their names on petitions, they make YouTube videos. Right, They go to the town halls and state their name. I'm so-and-so from such-and-such street in this neighborhood, and I don't want these people here. These are not people that are afraid. And so you have to understand that trying to ingratiate yourself is actually a mistake. It's a waste of energy, and it's counterproductive. Right. So what Muslims should do is be firm. Not confrontational, but be firm. Know that when you're dealing with these people, you stand firm, and you stand proud of your Islam, and you don't to, to, to quote uh, a sheikh who said something uh, about this kind of attitude, you don't go to them, oh, we're just like Episcopalians except we put our hats on when we go to church. This is nonsense. They're not buying it and they don't care and they don't want to hear it and you're not, it's not working. It's really not going to work. So be proud of your Islam. Stand up for Allah's rights and make dua and you'll have the help of Allah. And know that whatever result happens is going to be exactly what Allah had written for us. So don't make the mistake of trying to acclimate and trying to accommodate people who hate you and who hate you not because they're afraid and ignorant and don't know about Islam, but hate you precisely because they know that you're a Muslim and they know that Islam is somehow antithetical to whatever it is that they want in life. Right? These are not people that just need a little bit of education. And like I said before, if we're talking about educating, if we're talking about uh, being kind to people who maybe don't know about Islam, this is fine. This is good. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And uh, an ancillary point to this is Dawah, and Dr. Shari and I have talked about this before, I think, on, on a podcast. 
I know we, we've spoken to each other about it in person, but listen, dawah is not let's make people accept and tolerate the Muslims. Seeking tolerance, seeking acceptance of your mere presence, this is not dawah. Dawah is calling to Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that's what Islam is telling us to do. Islam commands us to make dawah, not to, hey, have people like the Muslims and tolerate them and never convert. Let, let them be upon their misguidance as long as they're nice to you and let you, you know, move into their neighborhood. It's not what dawah is. It's not ever what dawah was supposed to be. And even the argument that I've heard that, well, that's the long-term strategy. First, you get acceptance and toleration, and then eventually more people will convert. Listen, that sounds like a good idea maybe on paper, but that's not how it's ever really worked, and it, that's not how it works now. I mean, we're living in a time right now in which the Muslims are vilified publicly by our government, by our media, in, in every corner. There was 9-11, right, which created a lot of animosity towards Islam. Um, we're living in a period in which religion itself, regardless of which religion it is, the concept of believing in God is on the way out. It's on the way down. It's waning. There's less and less of it all the time, right? More and more people are atheists or agnostic or, you know, quote-unquote spiritual or non-religious. We're living in one of the least religious periods in history. And yet the Muslims keep gaining converts and people keep coming to Islam, right? It almost doesn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense because A, it's what Allah has written and it's what Allah has planned. And B, this message sells itself. All you have to do is say, listen, if you're a sincere person, look into it and tell me what other religion makes as much sense as Islam. All it requires from, from, the, from the potential Muslim is sincerity, open-mindedness. Just if a person is sincere and open-minded and they really consider it, I don't see how they can say, no, this other religion makes more sense. Or not believing in God makes more sense. Those are both ridiculous, right? If a person is open-minded and sincere, right? A sincere, honest, open-minded person, I don't see how they don't become Muslim once they learn about it. So again, we just call to it. We just make the da'wah. We say, hey, take a look at this. Have you ever considered becoming a Muslim? Have you ever considered that Islam might be true? And just leave them with the question. And that's the da'wah. The da'wah is not, hey, no, we're nice guys. I named my kids, you know, semi-Islamic names that could also be American names, you know, and uh, don't hate us. This is ridiculous. So... Um, that's one of my major problems with this term Islamophobia is that A, it doesn't describe the thing that we're trying to describe. It leads people, Muslims in particular, to having the wrong idea about who we're talking about when we call someone an Islamophobe. And that in turn leads us to take actions often, whether conscious or subconscious, that are not useful and often counterproductive. And it pushes the da'wah aside in favor of hey just like me you know one example the example that dr shadi gave when i was talking to him about this is say you send an ambassador from country from some country say france sends an ambassador to the united states right and he's supposed to be working on trade deals or whatever it is right some minister he comes here he's supposed to be working on you know getting a trade deal between the two countries and rather than doing that he just wants to make sure that he ingratiates himself to the host personally. Like, hey, listen, don't worry. Yeah, my country really wants to score this deal with you on, you know, trading sugar for tea or whatever it is. Right. But forget all that. I mean, if you want to do the trade, cool, let's do it. That's great. That's even better. But whether we do the trade or not, whether we work out the thing that I was actually sent to as an emissary to accomplish I just want you to allow me to live here and be nice to me and invite me to all your cool parties. Is that a per you should fire that guy. That person is not working for the interests of the one who sent him. He's not conveying the message that he was meant to convey. 
He's not delivering on the job he was supposed to deliver on. And rather, he's just being weak-willed and, uh, you know, a psychophant and just trying to get some comfort for himself. If that's what you're here for, if you're here for your own comfort, fine. But you're not doing dawah by it. And don't fool yourself and convince yourself that you are, right? And one of the things that, one of the fears, no pun intended, that I have about people thinking that Islam, that all the bigotry against Muslims is simply born out of an irrational fear is that they think they can overcome it by these kind of tactics and it's not going to happen. And often when people are focusing their energy on those kind of tactics, what they end up doing is leaving aside what really works, which is just make da'wah and make du'a and, and trust in Allah. Um, as an aside, slight aside, one of the other big problems I have with it is that the terminology, first of all, it's not created by Muslims, right? It's not Muslim scholars that that came up with that, with that term Islamophobia, and it 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 really comes from the same kind of uh, what's the word I want to use here? The sort of critical theory world of that that gave us the term homophobia, which is just as wrong, just as imprecise, and often for the same reasons, right? Without going into too far of a tangent, homophobia is a ridiculous term because while sure there may be some people who are scared of homosexuals or something, the majority of people are have, that have an adverse reaction to homosexuality are A, doing it from a rational place, even if there is some kind of fear, the fear that they have is a societal fear, a fear for the morality of their community, etc. These are not irrational at all. These are rational fears. And often, either along with that or um, separate from it, there's the disgust reaction. People find it viscerally objectionable. Homosexuality to them is something repugnant. And so they repudiate it, right? And they don't want it around. Because they find the act itself abominable. This is not irrational either, nor is it a fear. It's rather the reaction that one has towards something that is, in fact, disgusting. So, the, the, the kind of academia, the kind of academic uh, world that gave us the idea of homophobia is the same people that gave us the idea of Islamophobia. They're both useless terms. They don't describe what they intend to describe. They don't convey that meaning. And I think that it, it, it causes some confusion, particularly in the case of Islamophobia. Like, people don't get it. These people are not just ignorant and unaware of Islam and therefore scared of it without reason. Some of them are scared of it for things, reasons that they consider to be legitimate reasons and they're not, it's not just like some psychological fear where they have an adverse reaction to them and somebody says Islam and they go, oh no, Islam, that's not what's happening. Um, and a lot of times it's not fear at all and you can tell by the way that they react towards it and the actions that they take, right? So it's important to be aware of what we're dealing with and misusing the English language is not helping the situation whatsoever. Um, somewhat along the same lines, uh, the thing that's in current events that uh, I wanted to talk about, um, which I think will help us draw this clear demarcation between critical theorists type people, right? You know what we're talking about, the postmodernists, etc. Um, and uh, maybe on some future occasion when we have the, the, the rest of the guys on, we'll really talk about what critical theory is and where it comes from um, and what effect that's had on academia. Um, it's something that I'm, uh, I'm particularly uh, aware of because it, it's born out of the, the, the legal scholarship tradition. Um, Western legal scholarship comes out of the law schools. 
and nothing good has ever come out of law schools. Um, I say that only half-jokingly. Uh, the difference between that, the, this critical theory school, school of thinking, and critical thinking, which is a, a good thing, it's a very positive thing, it's a necessary thing. And to highlight that, just recently we had a... Uh, you know, it's really, it really is, it's inarguably a horrible thing. We had a school shooting, uh, again, uh, some kid who has a lot of social problems, a lot of mental health problems, um, in a society that has a lot of social problems and a lot of mental health problems as a society, right? Not that there's a lot of individuals with mental health issues, but it's a it's a emotionally sick society. Um this this young guy, uh I think he was 19 years old, uh went back to the high school that he had previously attended and I think he was expelled from and shot and killed 17 or 18 students there or students and teachers. And I don't know the details because I didn't honestly read the details. And uh, there's a reason for that, and it's part of what I'll touch on. But So this happened a few days ago in uh, Parkland, Florida. And uh, my wife and I have relatives that just a few miles from there. Um, they and their kids live just a few miles from there. Uh, so, you know, we know someone who is very close to the area. And, the, of course, the first thing you think is, it could have been those kids, you know, these great kids that we love. It could have been these great Muslim kids. Um, and even though it wasn't them, it's somebody else's kids. And we can't be callous about that. But by the same token, we have to engage these kind of stories with a critical eye. And we have to think about them critically. Because when the media presents to you a story like this and they go, oh, this is a huge tragedy, it is. And I don't know if, is it the numbers that make it the tragedy? Is it that it all happens in one enclosed location? Because as bad as these mass shootings are, and they are, you know, no matter who gets killed, that person has a family member. And for that, for those people, it's the worst tragedy, Right. But as bad as that is, there are kids in that age group being murdered by guns and otherwise, and often by guns, every single day. Every single day. And I don't have the precise numbers in front of me, but this is going to be very close within a few digits in each of these numbers that I tell you. There are approximately 11 and a half to 12,000 murders. This has been the average for the last few years in the United States committed with a firearm. So let's say 12,000. It's a fairly big number. I mean, it's a country of 350 million people. Uh, it's as a percentage of the population, it's very small, but 12,000 is 12,000. There's about double that number of suicides. Uh, with a firearm in this country. So when people say, you know, gun deaths, 35, 36,000 gun deaths in the United States every year, about 12,000 of those are homicides, and the other 24, 23,000 are suicides. So that's something to keep in mind. Of that 12,000 that are homicides, murders, about 9,900 are either gang-related, drug-related, or both, right? So the vast majority, whatever that percentage is, 75-80% of gun homicides in the United States, and it's a big number, that 75-80% are people who are involved in the drug trade, and when they say gang related, gang related means the drug the drug trade because that's what that's what street gangs are mainly engaged in. This is the business of a street gang, right? Street gangs, they're not killing each other over wearing the wrong colors. This is uh, this is a mistake. They're killing. This is territorial warfare, 
over drug blocks. These are drug-related murders, and so they revolve and devolve directly to the war on drugs and the way that it's been prosecuted in this country since the Nixon era, when it, when it was initiated. The the Also, the majority of that 9,900, that 80% or whatever it is of homicides that are drug and gang related, these are kids. Almost all of them are less than 25 years old. And a large number of them are less than 19 years old. These are kids, similar age to those kids that were killed last week in that high school. Almost all of those, almost the entirety of those kids that we're talking about that are in the drug or gang-related homicides were killed with handguns. Not semi-automatic rifles, not military style, not assault rifle, which is a misnomer, but... Well, we're talking about using precise language. An assault rifle is something that's not available to the public in the United States. As lax as our gun laws may or may not be, or as people think that they are, and there's no restrictions, the general public is not uh, legally allowed to possess military firearms, automatic assault rifles, but semi-automatics, right? So no AR-15s are used, no 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 semi-automatic rifles, none of that stuff is what is used in those murders. Those are almost exclusively committed with handguns. The most common weapon in the United States is a handgun. The most commonly available weapon in the United States is a handgun. Additionally, almost every single one of those firearms that are used to commit that 80% of murders, mostly of young men, are obtained illegally. They're not purchased in a gun store with a gun license. They're not purchased at a gun show with the gun show loophole or whatever it's called right which is also not a real thing none of that they're purchased illegally so when somebody like uh that late night host goes on tv and he starts crying and he goes when are we going to finally have some common sense changes he first of all he's not talking about anything specific because he doesn't there is nothing specific and any of the things that people specifically call for Every time somebody gets shot up in a movie theater, in a school, at a country music concert, the things that they say that they're going to do to prevent these crimes, they're not going to prevent anything. They will have a net zero effect on the number of deaths committed with fire, uh, homicides committed with firearms in this country. And really, more importantly, they will have 100% no effect on the inner city murders committed with illegal handguns or illegal firearms, committed against people who were sometimes innocent bystanders and sometimes participants in the drug business. And that doesn't mean that they should be murdered, by the way. They may be committing a crime. They may be doing something illegal. They may be doing something harmful to society. But that doesn't mean that they necessarily deserve to be murdered, does it? So when people call for we need common sense solutions or we need to ban all semi-automatic rifles and AR-15s. All that they're saying is that they don't care about the death of young people by firearms. They care about whatever the news told them to care about. And I'm not insulting these people who are saying this because they just haven't thought about it critically. And I'm sure that maybe some of you may have said this in the last week or at some previous time when there was another, some other previous, you know, school shooting or concert shooting or gay club shooting or whatever. All that people are saying when they say, well, we got to ban those kind of guns or we should all ban all seminar. All you're saying is that you care about whatever it is that the news is showing you and you don't actually care about the vast majority of firearms homicides. That you care not at all about the firearm suicides because those people need one bullet doesn't matter whether it's semi-auto, revolver, single shot. None of that makes any difference. People who are killing themselves with a firearm are doing it with one bullet. So what are you going to ban? Muskets? Like, that's not going to prevent the vast majority of deaths, who are also, for the most part, young people, by the way. Younger people. Although there is also older people that commit suicide that way. 
So basically, we're saying we don't care about out of what is the number that they say every year? 33, 34, 35,000 gun deaths, a few hundred of which are the so-called mass mass killings. So we're saying we don't care about 34 out of the 35,000. We only care about the ones that were killed with a semi-automatic rifle because the news said it's really a big tragedy. And like I said at the beginning, it is always a tragedy. But think critically. Think past what the media is telling you and think about the bigger issues and think about the bigger story. And sometimes when you consider the bigger story, consider that these mass killings, if they're really the worst part of it all, and that's the ones that you really want to address, banning a certain kind of gun is never going to get it done. Because FYI, in the United States, there's 350 million, uh, approximately 350 million people, and there's about 320, 330 million guns in this country. So you ban all you want and pass all the laws you want. There's no way you're ever getting all of those guns out. It's too late. This is the... This is the proverbial cat out of the bag. This is the Pandora's box. This is the whatever the whatever the cliche is. You're not curing that in this country with any kind of law. But the other thing to consider about these mass killings is that all of these people had serious and severe psychological, emotional problems. Every last one of them. All of which they and all of them were being medicated for those problems, and yet it was not addressed. And whatever they were whatever medicines they were taking we're not, obviously, we're not working and we're not having the effect that they were intended to, to have. And so this is what you end up with. So if you want to address that, address it by whatever the means are to address it. And it's not passing some some pointless law. Um, you know, I've even heard politicians or people on the media say, well, we want to do, we have to do something. But doing something that does nothing is still doing nothing. And in fact, it could be harmful because you could... The, the end goal of this for some people, right? There are people who are ideologically opposed to firearms in any private hands, right? The, the end goal of this is also highly problematic and something that we really should be worried about. And it's, it's, it's where the jumping off point is for people who go, oh, they want to take all our guns. There are people who want that. Politicians, in fact. There are politicians who want that and there are definitely activist people who do want that. What they want, by the way, is not no guns. They want... All of the guns in the hands of military and police. Right? So this this is the mentality. We can't trust normal people with guns. It should only be in the hands of who? The people who kill the most people, including the most innocent civilians. You know, I, I, I was looking at the numbers just the other day. The amount, <laughs> the number of civilians killed by police officers in this country in a year is 10 times the number of people killed in so-called mass killings, mass shootings, in 10 years. So it's some ridiculous ratio. So you're saying, let's take the hands out of all American citizens, the vast 350 million people, almost that many guns in this country, few thousand murders a year. It's a few thousand too many, but it's only a few thousand compared to this large population. Forget that. Let's disarm all Americans because of these few thousand, the vast majority of which are related to the drug war. Let's just disarm all Americans and let's concentrate all the weapons and all the power and all the permission to, to, to use these kind of weapons. Let's concentrate all of that in the hands of the police in the country, and the military abroad. It's a ridiculous, it's, it's, it's totally illogical, it's backwards thinking, and it won't ever accomplish the goal, right? And I'm not saying, however you personally feel about guns and gun ownership, just understand that when you see these things in the news, and when you see some politician on there, you know, spewing off something about, well, we need to, we need to re-examine our gun law and have common sense restrictions... They're just selling you a line for whatever whatever the reason is. None of these people are sincere. None of these people are telling you the truth. And by the way, along this line with critical thinking and, you know, this kind of propaganda stuff that we deal with, you know, I think that for me, this is a clear example because of how, if you look at the facts, it's so 
completely the opposite of what the standard line is, right? So for me, the gun thing is I, I pointed out not to encourage you to, you know, be an NRA member or, you know, love the Second Amendment or something, whatever it is, um, whatever your position is personally on guns, but just so that you can see how clearly misguided and how clearly propaganda, how, how clearly this is propaganda, right? And the thing that blows my mind about this is that Muslims, Muslims just buy it hook, line, and sinker. We should be the last people that are ever convinced of any of this kind of stuff. We should be the last people that easily buy the media line or the government line because we are one of the groups of people who most clearly knows that the news media lies about Islam, lies about Muslims. Our politicians lie about Islam, lie about Muslims. Like almost anybody you see with a microphone uh, uh, or you see on a television or you hear on a radio is either speaking out of complete ignorance or speaking out of malice about our religion. And we know that it's not true. It's clear to us. We're totally aware of it, right? So if we know that the government is lying about Islam and Muslims and the supposed link between our religion and violence and terrorism, right? And we know that the government does it. We know that the media does it. We know that law enforcement does it. Why on earth do we believe them about all of the other stuff? Like, it's illogical, right? Again, you have to think critically, people. You're talking about organizations which will tell blatant lies and misguide people and sell propaganda about us, about our religion, about the meanings of our religion, about our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam with an agenda. What makes you think that they're always telling the truth in all other cases? Why on earth would you believe that? It doesn't even make sense. So, just, I mean, honestly, I, I just, I just want to emphasize that. <coughs> oh, sorry, there was a point uh, that I wanted to make. So those kids that are being killed, that are dying in the streets of Chicago and Baltimore and Camden, right, as part of the drug war, they're all black and brown for the most part. And don't, don't, don't think that that plays no part. Again, as Muslims, even if you're not African American or you're not Hispanic or you're not, right, even if you're a white Muslim, you know that there is a racial component to the way that things are, are done in this country. So you have to understand that when people go on TV and cry about 17 or 18 kids, most of whom are white, getting killed in a high school somewhere, they're crying because these are white kids. And the reason that that guy goes on the rest of the week uh, was Jimmy Kimmel. The reason that he goes on all his other shows and tells jokes and tells crude jokes and you know, is just generally a clown and an idiot. The reason he does that the rest of the time with a big smile on his face is because the kids that got killed the night before he did that or the, the morning that he did that, those kids were black and Hispanic and don't matter. So, again, please use all of the faculties that Allah has provided you when you hear stories presented or we have to take action on this. It's the same thing they say about the Muslims. Well, we have to take actions. And and you know that they're lying about us. Just realize that they're probably lying about this too. And I just presented you with a bunch of facts that indicate that, yes, clearly they're either lying or they have no idea what they're talking about. And in either case, you shouldn't support that kind of stuff. Don't support that kind of talk. Don't regurgitate it. Don't go to your offices talking about, oh, yeah, we need to do such and such. Because you're just repeating a line that's being sold to you, and it's being sold to you either by people who are ignorant, um, are bigoted, are self-interested, or are pushing an agenda. Don't participate in any of it. Because really, you're no different than the people who go to the office and go, oh, you see those Muslims did another, uh, they the FBI foiled another terrorist attack uh, in such and such a place. Just save it, right? That's how you would feel about them. Believe me, that's how we look if we, when we talk about these other issues, just selling the media line or selling the government line. 
and buying into it because it's the same it's the same hustle so just bear that in mind inshallah um so just to summarize look language is important facts are super important and being aware of what you're dealing with in this life as you're making moves um you know you're very precise in your education you're very precise about your career path you're very precise i mean the level the level of scrutiny that people go into where they're going to work where they're going to live their neighborhood where they want to go to school who they marry these are all important when you're talking about interacting in this society identified as a muslim have the same level of scrutiny be as serious and as committed to a successful result in that as you are in all the other aspects of your life you know don't do it willy-nilly don't think that because islamophobia sounds like a good idea to say that it is a good idea to say don't think that well all the major activists are saying that it's because islamophobes they may not they may not they may not have thought about this all the way through or they may have bought hook line and sinker into the critical theorists and in fact i know a lot of them have or it might just not be that bright man so just just don't don't just go along with whatever the main line is because it is the main line you know i posted something on twitter the other day it's an article from psychology today which said that common sense is not as common as you think right and it's true just because something seems like it's the right thing or because most people are saying it doesn't mean that that's necessarily the case. And again, just look at the example of your own dean in this society and you'll realize that that's usually the case. Just because somebody or the majority of the people are saying it or because it's the popular line or because it's the common sense or you know the general consensus, none of that means that it carries any real meaning and value. In fact, often it doesn't. So be mindful of these things. Think things through critically be precise in the way that you talk about things and in the way that you explain things and in the way that you present our deen and remember that the dawah is to Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam not to acceptance and toleration and let me live in your neighborhood right because what good is it if the muslims are forget about tolerate imagine if everybody just loves to have us around hey more muslims great welcome and not a single person converts. You failed. Just because you got some comfort for you and your family, that's not, that's not the end goal. And it's not success. It's a failure. Right? If you can get that as a bone, as, if you get that as an aside, cool. Great. But that's not the goal in this country. Right? We're not here to just fit in. We're not here to just be liked. We're here to present Islam honestly, truthfully, clearly, precisely, and accurately. And to call people to that because, again, you don't have to dress it up. Allah created this religion beautifully. And Allah gave us a religion that is perfect. And it is the religion for the time it was revealed, every moment in between, for this time. And it will be the religion up until the last day. It will be the religion of its time. So, don't dress it up. Don't try to clean it up. Don't tr- or, or any of that stuff. Islam is Islam is beautiful by itself and it doesn't need our help to beautify it. Allah beautified it for us. Right? And we wouldn't be Muslim if it wasn't already beautiful for us. So what makes you think that you're going to make it better or more palatable or more attractive to anybody else? It's already perfect. Um, and I, th- I think that's pretty much it. I think I've probably said it all more than once. So, uh, inshallah, this has been enjoyable. Uh I hope I didn't go on too long. I hope I wasn't uh, too repetitive. And I hope I didn't sound too preachy because honestly, every advice that I give, I'm constantly in need of myself. And I wouldn't know that, I wouldn't even know to say these things if I wasn't going through them or hadn't gone through them myself. So there's no judgment, even if it, if it seems like there's no judgment in my words and no judgment in my tone. Just, um, you know, sincere nasiha. Which from the hadith is what is nasiha? It's calling to Allah and His Messenger. So, alayhi salatu wasalam. 
So uh, I, I only come to you as your brother, not as uh, anybody in any position of authority. Um, and I do so with love, not with any animosity. Uh, may Allah grant us all a beneficial uh, week until the next time uh, you hear from us. And uh, do leave us messages. We, if you leave us messages on, on the podcasts or on the Facebook, we really do read them and often we'll discuss them. And even if you get a response from only one of us, it's really we've, all dis- we've often all discussed it and the uh, response being expressed is from myself and Saad and Maureen and Dr. Shadi. Um, so we'd like to hear from you guys, um, even if it's with criticisms. We're all, we're, we all need those. And uh, we hope, I hope you have, may Allah grant us all uh, safety and goodness and increase in every good and protection from every harm throughout the week and also for our families. And may Allah increase the adherence to his religion more and more every day until only Allah is worshipped in every land in this, in, on this earth and until every person on earth experiences the beauty of this deen and the sweetness of iman and the honor and blessing of being from the ummah of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتوسوا بالحق وتوسوا بالصبر السلام عليكم ورحمة الله